So we are studying Ecclesiastes as a church. This has been a big pick-me-up, hasn't it? <laughs> Book of Ecclesiastes. I had an Ecclesiastes moment this weekend. I, I don't know, maybe made the mistake of going to the Chicago Tribune website and the Chicago Sun-Times website. And it is all Ecclesiastes. There's a politician who's in trouble for taking a bribe. There's a businessman who somehow embezzled millions from a bank and spent at least a million dollars of that money at a casino. I don't think they're ever getting that money back. There's a school official, painful school official, who resigned because there were abuse claims concerning a student and he didn't take them seriously. You look through and over and over and over again, it is an Ecclesiastes world. It is a world in which people do bad things and people hurt each other. That's not even counting the murders, the robberies, the shootings, the carjackings. It's not counting all the things that happen in our lives that don't get reported. It is a rough world. There's a lot of pain. And as we look around the world, we see that people time and time again hurt each other. Many times we treat each other well, but there are lots of times that we hurt each other and we are left to ask, why? And is there any hope? Or are we just left to shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, it's the way it is. That's the world. You just have to deal with it. To understand why this happens, to understand why we live in an Ecclesiastes world that is filled with pain and people who mistreat each other, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The book of Genesis tells us that God makes two people, Adam and Eve, and he places them in a garden paradise. And he says, hang out, enjoy each other, eat of the fruit of all of these trees, enjoy relationship with me, with Almighty God. God was living there among them. Enjoy it, have fun, this is fantastic, work and thrive. But God told Adam and Eve, eat whatever you want here in the garden, but stay away from the fruit of one tree. And just like any parent who's ever had a young child knows, when you tell them they can't do one thing, it's the first thing they do. And so Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of this tree, and sin is unleashed on the world, and we have been dealing with the pain of sin ever since. God tells us several of the impacts of sin. In Genesis, he says that women are going to have extreme pain in childbirth because of sin. So, Women giving birth, don't blame your husband, blame Eve for all of the pain. He says work is going to be difficult. We're not going to like it. It's going to be hard. Relationships are messed up. They are contentious instead of always loving. And he says this is what we are going to have to deal with. The broken relationships, the extreme pain in childbirth, all of the hard work. We're going to have to deal with it every day until we die. Look at this. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that one thing humans have to deal with as a result of sin is physical death. We are headed to the grave. He says, work is hard. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Men and women were supposed to live forever with God in this garden paradise, but sin messes it all up. And so the physical death 
That is the destiny of all of us. Unless Christ returns, we are all going to be in a grave someday. How's that for a Sunday morning pick-me-up? That's the destiny. We're all on this conveyor belt headed to the grave. And the reason is because of sin. We hurt each other because of sin. Is there no hope? Is there no way to turn this around? Do we just have to wait and see how God handles it at the end? Or is there something that can be done today? King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18 this morning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, the Village Bible Church app has the Bible right on it. You can download that or open it and follow along with us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Ancient King Solomon had just about anything you could imagine. All the power in the world, all the money in the world, all the influence in the world. One of, if not the wisest of men who ever lived. And yet, Ecclesiastes captures his thoughts, likely near the end of his life. He's looking back on everything. All the pleasure, all the possessions, all the projects that he completed, all the people that he influences and controls. He looks back at it all and he sees that it is vanity. It is vapor. It's here one moment and gone the next. It's fleeting. You can't control it. You can't slow it down. You can't really manipulate it. It just keeps on going. We're on this conveyor belt headed toward the grave. What is it all worth? Is it all pointless? He takes it one step further in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 as he's looking around at life under the sun, at life in the here and now, how we see things. He sees that not only are people on a path to the grave, but people are just like animals who are headed to the grave. He sees we have much in common with our furry friends. We're all living life, and then we're all heading to the grave. He's throwing up his hands and wondering, what is it all worth? What is the point of it? Is there any hope for anything more? People, just like animals, are on a path to the grave. Here is what Solomon says, beginning in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes 3. He says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity, vapor. Here one moment, gone the next. Not able to be controlled. It just keeps slipping away. All go to one place. Then he gets all Genesis 3 on us here. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. He desperately, in a very depressed state, sort of throws up his hands, says, who even knows what happens after the grave? I mean, all we can see is the grave. Who really knows what happens? Have any of you seen heaven? This is his point here. I mean, do we really know? It all seems so vapor-like. He says in verse 21, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? I mean, who knows? So I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You feel throughout Ecclesiastes 
the challenge that Solomon is having with the fleeting nature of life, the fact that nothing really seems to last forever. He's frustrated, he's depressed, he's beside himself. And he looks at the fact that not only are we on this conveyor belt, but all of our pets and other animals are on this conveyor belt. I mean, we're all just headed to the grave. What is the point of it all? In New York State, there is a cemetery where Edward Way is buried. I want to show you the grave of Edward and B.B. Gray Way. Uh, quite an epitaph here. Edwards is on the left. He died in 1976. Edward says, Here we sleep forever. I and my beloved B.B., my loving companion for 14 years, together in life, together in death. Yeah, I mean, you know, cemeteries are sad places. Death is sad. But that's a pretty nice epitaph, an epitaph of love. Edward and B.B. Says their B.B. Way died in 1973. However, cemetery records indicate B.B. was a cat. Edward buried next to his beloved BB. Now, some of you think that's really funny, and some of you love your dogs and cats, and you have an idea now, don't you? You're saying, wait, they'll do that? They'll bury us next to each other? I had no idea. Just like animals, humans are on this conveyor belt to the grave. This is what Solomon is seeing. We're all going to be in the ground someday. And in his desperation, he's asking the question, is there any hope? Is there any reason? Why do we even go forward at all? Solomon looks out over the world around him and he sees this Ecclesiastes world. He sees the way we treat each other and really mistreat each other. He sees that as we're on this conveyor to the grave, there are many things we get wrong, including the way we use power. People get power wrong on their path to the grave. He points out four things that we get wrong, beginning with power Influence, authority are not bad. God has created hierarchies and systems. He wants there to be leaders and followers in order for there to be an orderly world. Power is not bad, but the abuse of power is bad. And Solomon sees it goes on all the time, and it's true in our day as well. Solomon says this, look up above the passage we just read, verse 16. He sees that in places where there is supposed to be justice, where people are supposed to be able to count on the right thing happening, there is instead wickedness. And he just can't believe it. He says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's saying in the place where people should be able to count on things going well... There are times that injustice happens. This past week, another item in the news, eight convictions were overturned because years ago a Chicago police officer beat confessions out of these people. They didn't actually commit the crimes. He beat them until they signed the papers and then they got shipped off to prison. This truth was discovered and the people have now been set free. Now, it doesn't mean that all justice is bad in our system. It doesn't mean all police officers are bad, judges are bad, juries are bad. No. But it means there are times that we can look out and see where people should be able to count on integrity. Instead, they are mistreated. Instead, there is hardship and manipulation. And it is 
painful. This is what Solomon is seeing. He's wondering, is there any hope? Can there be a change? Or do we just have to wait until all the end of time? That's what he says in verse 17. He basically shrugs his shoulders and says there's nothing that can be done. We have to wait for God to sort it out. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. You see, Solomon sees things on this conveyor belt to the grave, people and beasts, nothing can change. There's no way to know if justice will actually be served until later. When we get out of here, hopefully God will sort it all out. Is that what we're left with? Is that all we have? Is that the only hope that we have? Maybe God will make it right someday? Or do we have hope for something different today? He goes on to go beyond the place where there should be integrity and instead is wickedness. And he talks about people in positions of power who oppress those who are below them. Turn to chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. He talks about those who oppress those who are underneath them. The very people who should be protecting, the very people who should be leading with kindness, are instead just hurting the people below them, taking advantage of them and manipulating them. He says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. What does he think that is better than dealing with this? It says better not even to be alive. If you're going to deal with someone in authority over you, abusing you, better to not even be alive. Beyond that, even better to have never been alive. This is the way Solomon is seeing things in his desperation. He says, verse 2, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Power is not bad. Power is given by God. Leadership and authority, part of God's design. Leaders and followers, that's the way God set things up. But because of the sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3 that has been unleashed on the world, people get this wrong. They mess this up. And so people who are in positions of power see the people underneath them as tools to be used. Hey, in the workplace... I'm the boss, and I can use these people in order to continue to grow and make more money and climb up that ladder. In the household, I'm the parent. These kids are here just to serve me. I'm, I'm just going to make them do whatever I want so I don't have to do it. There are ways in which people in power hurt those below them. That's not God's design. God's design is for people in power, people in authority, to lift those that they are leading up, to build them up, to handle this with integrity so that they're looking at the people that they are leading and saying, it's about them. How am I going to help them? How am I going to grow them? How am I going to care for them? This is true in churches. There are churches where leaders hurt people, manipulating them in order to get whatever they want done. And that's not God's design. He wants church leadership. He wants eldership. But he wants it so that that power, that influence is harnessed so that people are growing 
and being cared for, that little by little they're being made more like Jesus. Power is not bad. Authority and leadership are not bad. But sin causes people to abuse them. And Solomon looks out over the world and he sees that we're all heading to the grave and along the path to the grave, what's going on? We are getting power wrong. Sin is messing it up. He also notices that we get work wrong on our way to the grave. Work is not bad. God made us to work. He has gifted us to work. Good is Work is good. It honors Him. And yet, sin messes it up. Genesis 3 kind of stuff. Work is now hard. And so we don't engage in work the way God intends us to. Sometimes we use work for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we try to get out of work altogether. He begins by talking about the reasons. He tells the fictitious tale of a man who works, 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 works. And the only reason, the only drive is because his neighbor has more stuff than he has. And so he's working those 10, 12, 14 hour days, not because he has to, not because that's what has to be done to put the food on the table, but because his neighbor has things that he doesn't have and he wants them. And so work is not something to honor God. Using those gifts is not something for God's glory and our thriving. Instead, the work is all a means to an end. He has stuff that I don't have and I'm going to get it. Here is how it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, vapor, a striving after the wind. He's talking about a person who sees that his neighbor has a nicer house, or his neighbor has a bigger house, or his neighbor has two houses. And he says, why does he have what I don't? And so, instead of working to honor God, instead of working to provide, this person works and works and works. And the whole root goal the whole time is, this neighbor's not going to have more than me. That's not why God gave us work. That's not why he built us to work. He's doing it out of the wrong motives. A similar way that we get work wrong is by not doing it at all. Laziness. Trying to get out of work. He gives us a proverb here that is pretty vivid. He says in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Here's what he's trying to describe. Here's the picture he's trying to paint. This is a man who does not want to work. And so he's sitting there just sort of folding his hands, biding his time. Little by little, the food starts to run out. He's hungry. He's still unwilling to work. His laziness has consumed him. And little by little by little, he just starts eating his own flesh. The vivid picture that Solomon is painting is someone who'd be willing to eat their own flesh before they'd be willing to work. This laziness, this idleness... You know, in my own life, what I tell myself is I always put off the laundry and the dishes until the very last minute because I'm at my best in the last minute. 
That's when I do my best work under pressure like that, right? That's what I tell myself. It's not laziness. It's not that they're hard and I don't like them and I don't want to do it. And so I put it off as long as I possibly can. No, no, no. That's not what it is. Uh, Of course it is. We don't like the work. It is toil. This is Genesis 3 kind of stuff. And so we can be lazy or at the very least just push it all off. We don't want to do it. In our culture, what's been going on for decades in America? There's been this American dream that you work hard all of your life, you save up as much money as you can, and then at age 65, you're done with work forever. I'm slaving away in this job. I'm going to work as hard as I have to. I'm going to get whatever money I need. And then as soon as I can retire, I'm done. No more work. I'm going to the beach. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to relax and never work another day in my life. That is the dream that so many people are living. Laziness, lack of contentment, not understanding that work is a gift. We get work totally wrong. The Bible, I'm sorry to break it to you, the Bible says nothing about a retirement in which we completely give up work. I just crushed some of your hopes and dreams, I know. Some of you were saying, 65, I'm out at 59 and a half. What is this guy talking about? Work is good. Work honors God. We're to work as long as we are physically able. But because of sin... We get this wrong. We work for the wrong reasons. We try to get out of work as much as we can. Solomon looks at this and he says, on our conveyor belt to the grave, on our path, we get work wrong. Instead of seeing it as a way to honor God, we misuse it and we see it as something to get rid of. He gives us a little bit of hope here in verse 6, essentially encouraging us to go ahead and work. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. He's saying, it's okay, go go ahead and work, but work with contentment. Don't work with the toil. Don't make it a bother to work. Work is pointless if it's not enjoyable. It is this striving after the wind, trying to grab hold of the wind. It's elusive. Instead, work to honor God. As Solomon looks around, he sees that people get power wrong and they get work wrong. He's subtly asking the question, is there any hope or do we just have to wait until the grave to see how God sorts it all out? Is there any hope for this being different, sisters and brothers? Or do we, like Solomon, just have to shrug our shoulders and wait? He goes to another thing as well. He says that we treat relationships wrong. We get these wrong on our way to the grave. We treat people as though they are tools to be used, to be manipulated. They are there for our good and not for their good. We don't see relationships as requiring us to give in to others, to build into them, to sacrifice for them. We don't understand the value of partnerships. And so quite often we isolate ourselves. We ignore others. We say, I have enough friends. I don't need any more. And we push people away. Solomon says, we're getting it wrong. We don't understand. God built us for community. Even when it's hard, even when it's costly, God built us for community. 
He says in verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. This is a person who doesn't have anyone in his life, yet he's working hard to get as much money as possible, and yet he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. If you get to the end of your life and you've never had people that you've loved, you've never had meaningful relationships, but you're sitting on stacks of cash, what's the point? It's all vanity. It's all vapor. It's all here and gone. What were the hours for? God built us for relationships. It's different. Hear me on this. It's different if you're working the 10, 12, 14-hour days or the multiple jobs because you need to do that in order to put food on the table. That's different. But what Solomon is talking about here is the people who engage in that kind of work even if it means they avoid the life-giving relationships that they should have. It becomes all about what they can get, all about their possessions and not about others. They are completely self-absorbed. He goes on to say, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If someone decides that they would like to do harm to you, you're safer if you have someone with you. Safety in numbers. Solomon understood this. But we get it wrong. We avoid relationships at times. Why? I've already said they are costly. They require us to deny ourselves in order to build into others. The time alone is costly. How many of you had that cell phone ring and it's someone who needs you and you see their name on that caller ID on your phone and for a moment you go, because you know it's going to be a long phone call if you answer it. And so you make that decision. Am I going to answer it? Am I not going to answer it? Now, that's a challenge. It is. It's costly. But God says, I've built you for each other so that you support each other and help each other and build each other up so that together we're enabling each other to be more like Jesus. We were built for community. That's one of the reasons why you hear us talk about small groups so much here at Village Bible Church. It's not just because we want you to get in a small group. It's because we know God made us for community. And as we're reading the scriptures together and encouraging each other and praying for one another. We are growing. We are getting relationships right when we're willing to do that. But because of sin, because of tension, because of our self-centeredness, we get this wrong. We get power wrong on our path to the grave. We get work wrong on our path to the grave. We get relationships wrong on our path to the grave. And the final observation that Solomon makes is we get fame wrong on our path to the grave. Fame. I mean, it's what's driving so much of our world. People wonder, how many followers do you have on Instagram? That's what all social media is about. How many people liked your TikTok video? It's all about becoming an influencer. 
None of it is ever focused rightly on God, His purposes, His glory, the spread of the gospel, the expansion of God's kingdom. See, fame is not bad. None of these things is bad. Power, work, relationships, fame. None of them is bad. God has made all of them. He wants us to use them for His purposes. But because of sin, it all goes off the rails. We do this wrong and we hurt people. We crave fame because of what it gets us. The influence, the power. We crave fame because it makes us feel validated. Yeah, we're somebody if enough people know us and like us. That's why Facebook created the like button in the first place. When we get that like, we get a little hit of dopamine in our brains. Oh, I'm somebody. These people, 32 people like me. I must be somebody, right? It's the quest for fame, not for God's purposes, but for our own. That's where we go off the rails. And Solomon sees it. He tells us a story about a king. He started off poor. He started off wise. Slowly but surely over time, he ascended to the throne. He got rich. He got old. He got influential. But then he got foolish. And what this king ends up seeing is all of his power, all of his influence, all of his authority, all of the people who used to follow him sort of disappear when he leaves the throne. It says in verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he'd been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. That's the person who is to become the next king. He sees them all. He says, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. This king led thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, influential, powerful. But those who come later will not rejoice in him. They won't know who he is and they won't care. Surely... This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Fame is fleeting. Influence ends at some point. This summer in June, I was with my family in Los Angeles on a trip. And a beautiful day in L.A., lots of sunshine. We're walking through a park. And all of a sudden, I look up and I say, that kind of looks like David Letterman. And so I kept walking on the path, and I got closer. And it really does look like Dave. And then I listened, and I heard his voice, and I said, That's David Letterman. And so uh, what did I do? You know, I, I said, Well, he's with some friends. I'm going to give him some privacy and walk off the other direction. No, I didn't do that. I said, Dave. And he said, Cisco. No, no he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't do that. He did that. Would have been really cool. Don't get me wrong. But no, he didn't do that. Uh, he said, "What's your name?" And we started chatting. And for 15 minutes, uh, I talked with him and his friends, and it was wonderful. He was so kind. I want to show you a picture of this. All right, this is Dave and me hanging out in the park in L.A. Now. For 15 minutes, we talked about radio. For those of you who don't know, I'm a radio host, and Dave grew up in Indiana listening to several stations, including the one where I work. So we talked about radio. We talked about TV. We talked about YouTube. We talked about deep dish pizza. 
We talked about Conan O'Brien. We just, just chit-chat for 15 minutes like we were old friends. And then we went our separate ways, said our goodbyes. I walked back over to my wife and my three kids. And guess what? First thing out of my kids' mouths. Dad, who was that guy? He's talking to this stranger in a park in L.A. What's going on here? And I had to explain to them, kids, this is one of the most famous TV stars of all time. Millions of people watched his show every night. He made millions of dollars when he was on the air. He couldn't walk around his studio in New York because people would mob him. Don't you understand who he is? They didn't understand it, and they really weren't all that impressed with it. Fame is fleeting. And yet, we seek after it. We want it. We crave it. We want the attention. We want the power that comes with it. And what Solomon is reminding us here is fame for God's purposes, that's glorious. Fame and influence that allows us to share Jesus with others, that's great. But fame in and of itself, fame just because of what it brings us, is vanity. It is vapor. It is pointless. It's here one day and it's gone the next. Do we have any hope, sisters and brothers, for dealing with this in the here and now? I mean, Solomon has looked out. He's seen, just like the animals, we're on a path to the grave. While we're on this conveyor belt, on our way to the dirt, we get all kinds of things wrong. Power and work and relationships and fame. I mean, we get all this stuff wrong. Sin messes it all up. Is there any hope to change it today? Or do we just have to wait until we're in the afterlife hoping God sorts it all out? There's something interesting that I think helps us have hope for today and changes things today. Hear me on this, okay? I think Christians live life right when they remember they're already dead. I see some people checking their pulses right now. Some of you are saying, I was told when I died I would go to heaven and no one said it was having to sit and listen to Cisco. Here's what I mean by Christians, we are already dead, and we need to remind ourselves of it every day. The Apostle Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 2, in a verse that if you haven't memorized, you need to. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, when you come to faith in Christ, when you acknowledge that you are a sinner who needs a Savior and Jesus is that Savior and you repent of that sin and in faith you follow him as your Lord, you die and are reborn. You are now empowered to live life rightly because Jesus is living in you and through you. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's because of Jesus and what he is doing. That's what was celebrated in the baptisms today. The fact that we die with Christ. That's why you go down into the water in baptism. 
We die with Christ. And then just as Christ was raised, so we are raised. We enjoy new life unified to Jesus. And so because He is working in us and through us, as we yield to Him, acknowledging He is in charge and we need to obey and follow Him, as we do that more and more, every single day, we live life the right way. No abuse of power, no working for the wrong reasons or avoiding it altogether, no hurting people in relationships, no seeking fame for our glory. Instead, we live life the right way in the power of the risen Christ. Because through the Holy Spirit, He is living in us and through us. Sisters and brothers, unless Jesus comes back first, we are. We're all headed to the grave, okay? But in the meantime, we can do more than simply shrug at all of the pain that we see around us. We can confidently lean into the fact that we're already dead. We've died with Christ. We've been raised to new life with Him and ask Him to work in us and through us so that we can be different in an Ecclesiastes world so that the people around us can see that difference and ask us, what is going on with you? Why aren't you doing these things that all the other people are doing? And then we can say, not, we're more hardworking, or, or we're better, or we're smarter, or we're just nicer. No, we can talk about the power of the crucified and risen Christ in our lives. That is the hope we have, sisters and brothers, in an Ecclesiastes world for today and every day we're on this earth.